Well, this morning we're going to conclude our series on uh, the book of Esther. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to the book of Esther. Have you enjoyed uh, working through the book of Esther these past four months? Anybody? That's been really good, hasn't it? Uh, I've loved it in the sense that I, I probably have read the book of Esther maybe three or four times in my life. Uh, I can't remember a single seminary class on the book of Esther. Uh, I went back through my notes. I don't remember seeing any notes, taking any notes. And so for me to really read it this past few months and to really study it has been amazing. Uh, Did you know that Jesus asked 307 questions in his ministry? It's recorded for us in the Gospels. Uh, 307 questions Jesus asked. Uh, He was asked directly... 183 questions. And did you know he only answered three questions directly in all of the New Testament, in all of the Gospels? So he asked 307 questions. He was asked 183 questions. And he only answered three of them directly. You might say, well, what does that have to do with Esther? Well, Esther raises a lot of questions. And, and sometimes Jesus uh, would ask a question and wouldn't give an answer or would be asked a question, and he wouldn't give an answer. And it gives you some insight into the value of questions. You may have questions. Is God real? Is faith real? Is the Bible real? Is it inspired? Is is Jesus really the Son of God? Is He um, a miracle worker? Is He alive today? Uh, All these questions. And, And the Bible is not always really quick to give you answers to questions. There is a value, according to Scripture, for you to wrestle with a question. For you to not always have an easy answer, for you to not always see it very clearly, but for you to seriously ponder things that need to be seriously pondered. And so Esther, in many ways, has left us with questions. Uh, Questions like, why is the name of God never mentioned anywhere in this book? Is God active currently in secular society if we never see Him, if we can't visibly see Him? If all we have are clues as to His activity and things like that, uh, it also asks us, why is God delight in using broken and messed up people? You know, one of the phrases that we use in our discipleship courses here at Ridgeline is, it's okay to not be okay in this room. Now, I don't know if you've ever had one of those mornings where your wife gets arrested in the parking lot of church. <laughs> I'm just kidding. She didn't get arrested, but, but I woke up with a flat tire and I got up at 3 a.m. and Julie drove here. And it was just kind of one of those days and... Um, You don't really know what to do with that right now, but I'm sure that there will be a bigger purpose revealed. Uh, But sometimes you just have those sort of lingering issues. And uh, why does God choose to use broken people? Uh, Why would He choose to use somebody like me who can't get my inspection sticker done on time? It would put my wife in a situation where she's embarrassed, and so I apologize for that, Julie. Um, But yeah, this book of Esther has raised a lot of questions. And so here we are in the very last message Uh, in what has taken us from all of November, all of December, and and pretty much half of of January. And it's been a rewarding book, but it has surfaced a lot of these questions. And so we're going to conclude our time with it today uh, with a couple of uh, final questions for you to wrestle with as well. Uh, Last week, and I'm not going to summarize the whole book. I've done that almost every week since we've been here. Most of the series is already on our website at ridgeline.cc. And so Uh, Many of you I know follow along on the website, and so you're welcome to do that um, and catch up as well. But the book of Esther, we're concluding, and last week we left off with this situation. There were nine months between when the Jews first learned 
that they were able to defend themselves on the 12th month and the 13th day. So let me kind of catch you up a little bit. You know that the plot of the wicked, evil Haman uh, was to completely annihilate the Jews. Women, children, elderly, young, and everybody. From India to Ethiopia up to modern-day Turkey. Just that area that we call the Middle East. That entire area, all the Jews were going to be eliminated on the 13th, of, 13th day of the 12th month. And so that was the irrevocable law that was passed under Haman with King Xerxes' uh, full cooperation. Except he didn't know they were Jews. You know the rest of the story. Um, his wife, his queen, she ends up becoming... Uh, she reveals to him that she is Jewish, and Haman ends up getting killed, and, uh, and then a second law is passed. Well, first of all, let's sit with the first edict. Uh, what would you have done if you were a father back in those days? If you had received the first edict, and, and, uh, and you had the knowledge that in a year, on the 13th day of the 12th month, a year out, basically, that all of your enemies were authorized to execute your family, uh, your cousins, your aunts, your uncles, your grandparents, your, your infants, and they were able to take all your property, and all of this was rubber-stamped by the government. What would you do, fathers? What would you do, mothers? What would you do at dinner time when you're saying a prayer? Uh, what would you do with the last year of your life? Well, that's a hard question to wrestle with, but this is exactly the situation that they were all dealt with. Would they build a bunker? Would they try to flee? Would they try to get out of town? Would they sell all their stuff? Would they, would they deny being Jewish? What would they do? And what would you do? Well, we see that many of them prayed fervently that God would intervene. And so then comes the second irrevocable law in the book of Esther. And that is that when the king learns that Esther is a Jew, and he hangs a Haman... He elevates Esther's cousin Mordecai, and Mordecai becomes the prime minister. And so they write a second law, because the first law couldn't be changed, so they write a second law that says, now the Jews can defend themselves. Now on the 13th day of the 12th month, all the Jews can come together and defend themselves, and they have nine months to get ready. So, if you were a father, what would you do with your family? If you were a mother during that nine-month period. Well, Scripture tells us what they did in, in chapter 8, verses 13 through 17. When the second edict went out, the, the Jews were to be ready on that day. And it says the couriers delivered the news on swift horses, and they rode out, and Mordecai went out in the presence of the king. Uh, and everyone in every province, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. In every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, and a feast and a holiday. And many people from of all the countries declared themselves Jews because the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. This was a day of celebration, and they haven't even fought yet. They have nine months. This is the third month when the second law is passed. And so now they have nine months to sharpen their swords, uh, to grab weapons, uh, maybe to go on a little diet, maybe to exercise a little bit, maybe to fast. I, but whatever they're going to do, they have nine months to do it, and this showdown is coming. Maybe a month or two ago, I took Grayson to uh, capture the flag birthday party. 
And there's like 20 10-year-olds armed with these mega Nerf blaster guns. And just watching all these kids set up this enormous battlefield of capture of the flag and weapons and huge buckets of ammunition. And they had this series of games and trainings before the, the main event. And this was like an elimination battle, right? On this battlefield of kids playing capture the flag with Nerf guns. And imagine that played out over 127 provinces all over the Middle East, but for real. That all the enemies would gather, and all the Jews would gather, and in every single city, there would be a capture-the-flag type battle to the death. That's what they're facing. And now they have all of the wind at their back. The king is at their, has their favor. Uh, Mordecai, a Jew, has now been elevated. Haman, the guy who devised this whole plan. He's been hung. And so now we're coming up on the 13th day. And this is happening soon. So this is the text. And before I get to the text, let me just kind of already tell you where I want to go with this message. I want you to see in this passage that we're about to read, chapter 9 and 10, that the good news of Jesus' death on the cross is this, that like Haman, your enemy desired to master over you. He wants to rule over you. And through the, ga- through the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus, you can gain mastery over Him in Christ Jesus. So I hope that you leave here this morning with a little bit of hope, f- with some relief from your enemies, and with some rejoicing in the victory that God has given you in Christ Jesus. So that's where we're going to go. So if you have a Bible, uh, feel free to follow along with me in Esther chapter 9. Verse 1 says, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and his edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors, all the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Verse 5, so the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed the ten sons of Haman. You can read their names there. <laughs> That's how you get out of saying hard names in Scripture, right? You just I do know that five of them end with Atha, like Haman's dad was Hamadatha, and so... Some of them are named after his grandfather, and the others have an, uh, interesting names. I, I, I was trying to think of this. I think Arisai and Aradai might have been twins, right? You name two twins kind of close together so that you always forget their names when you're uh, frustrated. Uh, verse 11, that very day, the number of those who were killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to the queen, Esther, in Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. So this is quite a crew of enemies that are coming out, even in the face of the king, even in the face of the second edict, this is still a bold enemy front that will attack 
no matter what. Now, Christian, did you know that no matter what, there will be people who will attack you? There will be people who are dead set on ruining your life. In the face of truth, in the face of all that they might even know in their own heart, they may come after you with everything they have. Just like these guys, they are going to destroy the Jews, whether they have the favor of the king or not. And so they do, and they are killed. Uh, So 500 men, uh, verse 13, um, Esther said, if it's pleasing to the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also. We We didn't get enough of the enemies today. There's more out there. And if they gather tomorrow, let us get them tomorrow as well. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king's command commanded this to be done, and a decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. Verse 15, the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day, on the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa. That's 800 total, but they didn't take any of the plunder, and that's repeated two or three times in this text. Verse 16, now in the rest of the Middle East, the rest of the Jews who were in all the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives, and they got relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested. The people in the rural areas just did it in one day. The guys in the city, the citadel, they did it in two days, and so this is an explanation of why some celebrated on the first day, And some celebrated on the second day. Skip down to verse 20. Mordecai recorded all these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far. And he obliged them to keep the 14th day of the month and the 15th day of the month of the same year, every year, as days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month that had been turned for for them from sorrow into gladness and mourning into holiday. Now just pause there, because I'm gonna, this is going to be one of my first points in a minute, is, is something mastering you that you need relief from? Maybe an addiction, maybe a struggle, maybe a thought pattern, maybe a, a toxic relationship. Is there something in your life that you need relief from that you could say this about it, that it turned your sorrow, your mourning into gladness and joy and into a holiday? That's the power of what God is up to in this passage. Uh, Verse 23, let's finish the text. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do, that is the festival, and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure, that is, lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of all that had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail... They would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every single year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province and city, and that all the days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days ever cease among their descendants. And you know that on February 28th of this year, the festival of Purim will continue. Jews all over will gather for a two-day festival. They'll send food to the poor. They have to re- they're required to send a food, two types of food gift to one person who's poor. 
They're required to give money. They're required to read the story of Esther. Uh, every time they do that, they gather. All the kids will scream anytime the name Haman is read, or they'll boo, or they'll drown out his name. And this is an ongoing feast that happens even to this day. And it'll happen in February, at the end of February this year. Um, to finish the text, uh, all of this is going to happen. And, and so this is uh, verse 29. Queen Esther is also going to write a letter. And so Esther wrote and said, the daughter uh, of Abihel of Mordecai the Jew, she gave full written authority confirming the second letter. And letters were sent to all the Jews, to all the 127 provinces, that they should do the same thing. Skip down to chapter 10, verse 1, and we're going to end with Mordecai. King Ahasuerus imposed taxes on the land and on the coastlines, coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the kings advanced um, him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people, and he spoke peace to all of his people. That's the text. And so that concludes that we've read almost every single word in the book of Esther, if you've been following along uh, for the last uh, few months. Great book, great story, even greater truths are within it. And I want to end the series with these few questions to leave you with. Uh, Verse 1, it says, the opposite occurred. I read a phrase this week that said, I was an expert in parenting until I became one. Is that true for anybody else? You expected to be perfect in something, and when it happened, found out that you weren't perfect in it. And this is kind of similar, that they expected to take advantage of the Jews. Uh, Haman promised for 100 tons of silver in payment for their execution, and the opposite happened. Haman was destroyed and all of his property was seized. Um, Has something the reverse ever happened to you? Maybe uh, an expectation uh, or something unexpected altered your life? Maybe an accident or a chance encounter or some unusual event or a close call or maybe some conversation that you could trace and you just didn't see it coming. It was unexpected, but it has drastically altered the events of your life. Could you imagine them expecting one thing and the very opposite happening? Maybe you've anticipated something for your own life. Maybe you, maybe you expected a promotion. And you, the boss called you in, and instead of a promotion, maybe you got it demoted. Maybe you expected a pay raise, and, and when he walked in, he said, we're going to have to dock your pay and cut out your holiday, and, and, and maybe that's been a loss. Maybe you were confident that you were going to be successful in some area. But you, you, you've struggled and it feels more like failure than success. Maybe you had big dreams and big goals and big hopes and, and in some way all those things have come crashing down. Maybe your marriage or career, uh, you thought it would go one way and it, it went the opposite way. Maybe this is not the life you dreamed of right now. Um, maybe you thought you were going to be a better parent or a better friend or a better student or a better employer or employee or a leader in some way, and, and you just haven't. Well, those are all negative examples, but, but they could easily be made positive. Maybe you got the promotion, and you got the raise, and you got the, the expertise, and the leadership, and the success, and the, the financial blessings, and all those things. It's amazing, though, the irony that takes place in the kingdom of God. 
It's amazing that we can sort of set our course one way and the Lord will drift us in the opposite way. And for His glory and for His sovereignty, life in Christ is full of irony and interesting twists and turns and bends and all these kinds of things. And we never quite fully understand what God is doing in your life. Can you identify with that? Some of it has to do with this phrase of mastery. The enemies of the Jews thought they were going to gain mastery over them and kill them. And the Jews got mastery over them. So the question I want you to wrestle with in this time is, what has mastery over you today? What is it that you want relief from? Maybe it's a physical issue. Maybe it's a relationship issue or a career issue or a health issue. Maybe it's a season of grief and loss. Maybe it's an addiction that you just can't seem to shake. Maybe it's a, a relationship that's going south. And Despite all your efforts, despite all your hopes, despite all your prayers, you feel like this situation has mastery over you. Maybe it's a temptation that just won't go away. What do you do with these temptations or situations? Let me just give you a little bit of insight into this if you feel like you've been mastered by something. If something other than Christ has mastery over you. The Bible describes that we're all tempted. It's not a sin to be tempted. You experience temptation. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said you can't really stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Uh, Just to describe the fact that temptation is around us all the time. And you can avoid it. You don't have to give in to it. But maybe temptation in a certain way has gained mastery over you. If you think about that phrase in Genesis chapter 4, where the Lord comes to Cain and He says, why is your face downcast? Why are you so angry that I accepted Abel's sacrifice and not yours? If you do what's right, won't, won't everything go for you? Won't I be pleased with you? But if you don't do what's right, remember the phrase, sin is crouching at your doorstep with this picture of a lion ready to pounce. He says, sin is crouching at your doorstep, and its desire is to master you, but you must master it. And this idea of mastery, it's all over Scripture. It's all over the place. You're going to find that there is somebody who wants to be your master. And in many ways, it's sin and temptation. And, and, and for us in Christ, it is that Jesus has that rightful place of lordship in our life. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that no temptation has overtaken you, except that's what's common to man. And God is faithful. He's not going to allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. Isn't that surprising? That you have in Christ the resources and the ability to resist temptation? The rest of that verse says that with that temptation, He will also provide for you the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So temptation is a part of our everyday experience. Resistance, fleeing from temptation, enduring, praying. You remember that phrase in the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, right? We understand that prayer and these resources are right at your fingertips. But we also understand that other temptations will linger. God allows you to experience 
some types of temptation. You remember 2 Corinthians 12, Paul said, I was exceedingly prideful because of all the things that God was doing in my life and the things that He was revealing to me. And I was so prideful about it that He gave me what? A messenger of Satan to torment me and to tempt me. So to keep me from being conceited, verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 12 says, Because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. And three times I pled with the Lord to take it away from me, that it should leave me. But He said to me what? My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. So Paul says, well, I'll just boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. There are some temptations that God will allow you to wrestle with from now till the day you die. Amen, right? Yes. Thank you. That's just true. Some things you are not ordained to have victory over. Other sins you will have great victories, great strides over. But if you're pursuing progressive sanctification in Christ and growing in holiness and growing in His likeness, it will not, your life will be reflected by struggle with something. But this mastery has a different idea in the overall view of things when you think in the bigger redemptive picture of the lost and the saved. See, in Christ, He's our master and we may struggle with temptation and issues that seem to have mastery over us. But outside of Christ, there is a different master altogether. Ephesians 2 says, You were once dead in your trespasses and the sins that you used to walk in, and you followed the course of this world, and you followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in all those sons of disobedience, and among whom we all lived at one time in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. Do you see the distinction? Outside of Christ, you are mastered by the prince of the power of the air, and you are dead in your trespasses. There is no victory. You are like those 75,000 enemies of the Jews that as they come against God's people with certain defeat in view, they are mastered by this prince of the power of the air. And outside of Christ, that's the reality because the, the Bible describes them as dead in their sins. But thank God for verse 4 of Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And isn't that good news? In Christ Jesus, you have victory over temptation. You have victory. You're no longer being mastered by something. You have relief from your enemy. But you should have greater compassion for those who are still dead in their trespasses. Jesus uh, in Luke 19 says that, that He came to seek and save the lost. It was a mission, a purpose of Jesus, that those who are trapped under the other enemy should come under His mastery and experience life and redemption and peace and purpose and forgiveness and grace and all those things. And that's worth celebrating. And if you look at the second half of the chapter here, 
they celebrated well, right? They celebrated so well that it became like a law. They were committed to celebrating this relief from their enemies. They were committed to celebrating and remembering for all generations, so much so that 2,400 years later, in a few weeks, Jews all over the world are going to gather and they're going to read this story and they're going to... I mean, I'm just going to tell you some of the things that they're allowed to do. They just have to drink as much as they want, and they're going to give gifts, and they're going to—they're just going to have a party for two days. So, my second question: What I want to ask you about is, how do you celebrate the good that God has done in your life? Do you celebrate well? Are you a celebratory person? Maybe some of you too much, right? Maybe some of you not enough. Uh, but do you celebrate the good things that God has done in your life when you experience a victory or a blessing? Do you pause before moving forward and just say, thank you, God. Thank you for what you... Do you invite friends over and say, hey, this is what God has done in my life? You know, there's a value for celebrating the goodness of God in the congregation of God and in the fellowship of God's people. We should be celebratory people. So let me ask, how do you memorialize the things that God has done in your life? What do you do? What would be worthy of an annual celebration in your life or in your family? You celebrate your birthday, anniversary, Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, Memorial Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Labor Day, Fourth of July. What would you add to that? What would you allow yourself, commit yourself to celebrating? Listen, don't, don't rush past this. Many people never stop to breathe and reflect on the good things that God has done. If you don't celebrate what He's done, you're never going to appreciate what He's about to do as much as if you don't pause to memorialize. Because we have short memories, don't we? We forget all of His provisions and how maybe months ago He delivered you from a a bad situation. And now you have some relief from your enemies. Listen, stop and celebrate the goodness of God. Invite some friends over. Make a feast And just say, this is what we're celebrating. God is a good God and He's done good things in my life. And I just want to share that with all of you at the table or at the Chuck E. Cheese or whatever you do to celebrate, right? That was stupid. (laughs) So commit yourself to stop and celebrate what God has done. And just the last thing I want to leave you with here is, I'm just really impressed with Mordecai. And it's the last thing I'm going to say about This is my last point here. Just think about Mordecai's life. Summarized in 10.3, but if you think about the 10 chapters. He sacrificially raised his cousin after his family had all died away and her family had all died away. He he took her under his wing. I met a a 22-year-old girl last night at our spaghetti dinner who adopted her 19-year-old, I think it was her cousin who has special needs, And as a single 22-year-old girl, she adopted her 19-year-old special needs cousin. I think it was her cousin. She got married a year later or so, but but they're raising this this child, this girl. It's very similar to Mordecai. He looked after his cousin day after day for a whole year when she was forcibly taken into the king's harem. Adults, you know what a harem is. Every day he... Between shifts, between his job, between what he was doing, he would just hang around the gate. Any news on Esther? How's Esther doing? I'm worried sick about her. What's, what's going on with Esther? Every single day. 
He was always there. He discovered a plot to assassinate the king. Not a great king or even a good king. Actually a pretty corrupt and greedy king, right? And yet he he blew the whistle and saved the king's life. He uncovered the plot. And he didn't demand any recognition whatsoever for his act of saving the king's life. It would be years before anybody recognized what he did. He refused to bow down to the wicked Haman, proving that his instincts were correct. When it cost him everything, he continued to remain stubborn. After the first law had been written and all the Jews had a death sentence over them, he could have just bowed. But he remained, in a godly way, stubborn. Some of us can remain stubborn in a non-godly way, but he, he still refused to bow down to Haman when he walked in. A man of principle and conviction. He urged Esther to take a risk and to sacrifice herself for the chance that she could save her people by going before the king. And he didn't just ask her to take that risk. He said, and we're going to cover you with fasting. Everybody I know, for three days, he put sackcloth and ashes and he, he completely humbled himself as this source of intercession for Esther. He was honored by the king, but it didn't seem to faze him. You remember Haman dragged him around the city on a horse with the king's royal robes on? And it, you never see a blip on the screen. Listen, the way you handle success in life says more about your character sometimes than the way you handle defeat. You can be a bad loser or a bad winner. And if you're not humble in either, it says a lot about your character. Even though he was honored by the king, it never seemed to faze him. He wasn't impressed with the robes. He wasn't impressed with the horse ride. You have zero indication in the rest of the book that he enjoyed that whatsoever, even though Haman was at the lead of the horse. Isn't that interesting? Some of us, if, we, if God gave you all of your hopes and dreams and successes, you would be an entirely different person. You think, if I just won this much money or, or God landed this promotion or... God keeps some of that from you because He knows that your character can't handle it. Mordecai was exalted to second in command, and I want you to listen to this final sentence about his life in chapter 10, verse 3. Even though he was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, the greatness didn't go to his head. He was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. Why? Because he had compassion. He sought the welfare of his people, and he spoke what? He spoke peace to everybody. I would love to preach Mordecai's funeral. Right? What a guy. What a heck of a guy. Well, through the courageous actions of Mordecai and Esther, God changed the world. And they still celebrate this to this day. I want to conclude with this. Uh, every year on February 20th, 1991, I celebrate the fact that God rescued me. That day, February 20th, 1991, was the day that as an atheistic kid that didn't believe in God and had a world of troubles, I prayed and asked God to save me, to help me if He could, if He was real. And a man came to my door and he shared the gospel with me and asked me if I died today, do I know for sure I'd go to heaven? And it was at that moment, at that day, February 20th, 1991, 8.30 p.m. at 1520 Pecan Street in Norman. I keep a picture of the front porch on my phone because every day on that day I celebrate what God 
has done in rescuing me. Giving me relief from the enemy. What day do you commemorate in your life? There should be no greater day in your life than the day you trusted Christ and experienced relief from all your enemies. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the picture of the gospel here. That in, in your sacrifice, you gave us victory. Not just over annoying temptations and difficult struggles, but you gave us victory over death itself. That in our sin, we deserved nothing but punishment and judgment. But in Christ, you gave us relief from that. So we worship you this morning. You're worthy of it. And you're worthy to be worshipped and adored no matter how we feel today. We thank you that you're worthy to be worshipped. And so would you allow us to humble ourselves to celebrate what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. We ask it in His name. Amen.